Let's pray. May the words of my mouth and the meditations of our hearts be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, our rock and our redeemer. Amen. You might even be driving at this point, but I'll ask you this question anyway. Imagine you're going on a lengthy car trip. Have you been on any of those? (laughs) Maybe after a couple hours behind the wheel, you're getting really tired, but all of a sudden you look up and you see a sign. And it shows the name of your destination and how many more miles until you get there. You see that sign for the first time and with your destination in the distance, that's a pretty good feeling, isn't it? You have a sense of accomplishment, right? After all, that's good news. You're part way there. But remember, there's also not so good news that your destination is still in the future. It's still coming. You aren't there yet. You may be closer than when you started, obviously, but you've still got a ways to go. Maybe your back aches a little bit, your stomach's grumbling, there's no place to stop. Your mind is starting to get numb from what seems to be this endless road that feels like it's going nowhere, but you're still not there. That's the tension we face every Advent season. We talk about Jesus who is coming again to be with us, even though we know he's already here. We hear those words, peace on earth, goodwill to all, but as we look around it feels... Like peace is a long way away. Even though we hear the world sing, this is the most wonderful time of the year, we know that the distance to that peace destination feels very, very far away for sure. So every Advent we have the destination and distance signs on the road to the manger. Those signs include peace, hope, love, joy. With every passing Sunday we might have the same response. Our destination's coming, but boy, oh boy, are we a long way off. Each week is a reminder that we've almost achieved these things, but we aren't there yet. We seek that peace and hope, love and joy, but often they don't come fast enough, do they? We wrestle with these unsatisfying things that are all around us to try and fill that void for peace and hope and love and joy. In these next four weeks of Advent, we will dive headlong into some pretty deep places that can help us to claim the arrival of God with us, Emmanuel, who sees us through to the destination regardless of how long we've traveled or how long it feels before we get there. It will help us cover the distance between almost and altogether. Almost is not quite but altogether means you're there. On this first Sunday of Advent, we see the destination and distance sign, which reads almost peace. It doesn't take much for us to realize how many miles we have to go before we get to that destination of altogether peace. All we have to do is look at the latest news, the latest flare-up in another part of the world, the struggles people are having, violence, war, the damage we do to the planet. Think about the harm that we cause each other. Not just with our actions, but with the words we use, the prejudice we feel, the resentment. Think about the broken relationships you might have with loved ones and friends and the layers of bitterness and the feelings of betrayal, heartache that you've seen over these miles. Now think about the lack of peace within your own heart, about the unsettledness you feel about your future, the conflict you have as you're fighting your own inner demons, whether they're guilt, shame, 
and even the inability you have to tame those wild horses of anger and fear and powerlessness. Oh gosh, peace just seems so far away. And we do our best to project almost peace, don't we? The founder of Methodism, John Wesley, used that term almost as well. He used it to define people who try to live a Christian life, but don't fully get there, that do some of the things, but not make the commitment. He called them almost Christians. He said they had an outward form of godliness, but still fell short altogether of godliness on the inside. We cover up our insecurities, we put on a good face, and we hide that chaos inside ourselves from other people as the chaos rages around us. We try to portray that things are better than they really are. But on the inside, deep down inside, we are far from peaceful. In fact, I might say we're afraid. Each of the characters in the Jesus' birth story had very similar struggles, and they were afraid too. The Gospels remind us that none of Jesus' closest family, none of his associates had perfect or trouble-free lives when he was born. That's why for each of them, the angel's first message wasn't, Hi, how are you? But don't be afraid. The first character that Luke introduces us to in the birth narrative was Zechariah. He was an old man, he was a priest, he was childless with his wife Elizabeth, and he was visited by the angel. And when Gabriel brought him some amazing news, Zechariah, you're going to be a father. Luke says he was startled and overcome with fear. At his age, he was definitely in need of some peace. Later on, we meet Mary, the young unwed girl who was troubled initially by the appearance of the angel Gabriel. She wrestled with how to deal with the news that she would be bearing a child. And this wasn't just any child. This was the very Son of God himself. To marry justice to Zechariah, Gabriel gave reassurance with the words, Do not be afraid. Then when Jesus was born, there were those shepherds out in the fields, And when their night sky was emblazoned with a fireworks display of singing angels, they weren't just afraid. The Bible tells us they were terrified. They too were in need. Over and over again in the Gospels, we are reminded that the world Jesus entered was one that needed a whole lot of peace, not just in society and relationships, but deep down within the human heart. I would think you've had moments when You've needed peace within yourself, right? John Wesley was no stranger to stress, to arguments, or even anger within himself. But he was very clear about the need that we all are to be peacemakers. In his Sermon Upon Our Lord's Sermon on the Mount, Wesley unpacked the one beatitude, Blessed are the peacemakers. He did so by offering a plain-spoken and no-nonsense definition of what that means. And actually, he summed it up in two words. Do good. That's it. Do good. Wesley understood that it's as easy to do good to those whom you agree with or who you like. In those relationships, there's no conflict. But the real call of God 
is to cross the boundaries that divide you from someone else, whether those conflicts are born out of betrayal in your relationship, or disagreements over politics or religion, or differences in race or gender, age, or any number of other barriers. Folks, we are called to do good. The call isn't to do it just once. Wiping your brow and say, that was easy, I hope that's enough. No, and you don't want to expect that the other person will respond in kind. At least that shouldn't be your hope. Peacemakers do good all the time in every way. Wesley put it this way, he does good, not of one particular kind, but good in general, in every possible way, employing herein all his talents of every kind, all his powers and faculties of body and soul, all of his fortune, his interest, his reputation, desiring only that when his Lord cometh he may say, Well done, good and faithful servant. Wow, that's a challenge, isn't it? But Wesley believed that an altogether peace can only come when we commit to doing good all the time in every way, with all that we are and all that we have, until the very end. The primary action for any follower of Jesus Christ who wants to live that way in an altogether peace is to do good. It was a command that Jesus took seriously and wanted to make sure his disciples understood it as well. But we have to understand the idea of peace that Jesus had. It would have been an understanding that came from the Hebrew word shalom, which we often translate as peace. It's really one of the most important words in the Bible. And like most Hebrew words, our English language doesn't do the word justice, doesn't capture its full essence. Unlike our word peace, which can simply mean an absence of conflict or war, or a feeling of serenity, contentment, the definition of shalom is much, much bigger and more encompassing. It includes so much more. Shalom comes from the root word shalom, which means to be completed, to be healthy or uninjured, or to keep peace. It means peace, but it also speaks of a wholeness, a completeness, if you will, a fullness. If we look at the wide biblical stories and witness, we find that shalom often imagines the whole and complete restoration of creation. In other words, this kind of peace starts with a wholeness in yourself, but it doesn't stop there. It then offers wholeness in your relationship with other people. Then, as more relationships are restored, we can have shalom communities, and we pray one day a shalom world. Again, shalom doesn't just mean the absence of conflict or trouble. It points to the fullness of health and prosperity for oneself and others. But what does that look like to have that shalom spread? Paul's letter to the Ephesians reminds us that the heart of God calls us to focus on what we can all be for rather than what we might be against. It's a completeness which encompasses what that word shalom really means. Listen to these words again from Paul's letter to the Ephesians and what we ought to hold together in common. He said, Make an effort to preserve the unity of the Spirit with the peace that ties you together, 
You are one body and one spirit, just as God also called you in one hope. There is one Lord, one faith, one baptism, and one God and Father of all, who is over all, through all, and in all. That one word, that word one, is a key in that passage. It truly reflects the oneness that is at the heartbeat of God for God's people. And we do it by celebrating our diversity, honoring our differences, and at the end of the day, working towards unity together. So how do we do that? Paul gives some very practical guidance on how to be peacemakers in a time of cultural trouble. And I think you would agree that we are in that kind of cultural trouble today. He shows us how to maintain the unity of the Spirit in the bond of peace as we look through Ephesians chapter 4, verse 3. He says to speak the truth. We need to be sure we're speaking with facts, not their facts or our facts, but the facts. We're called not to lie to people. We're called to speak truth to power. He tells us where to watch our anger. He didn't say, don't be angry. After all, Jesus was angry as well when he overturned the tables. But he's saying, don't be so angry that it leads you to sin and furthermore leads you to hurt the humanity of someone else. He says, don't steal. He wasn't just talking about things. He was talking about stealing someone's dignity, hurting them by treating them as less that human is stealing. We're called to practice empathy. In other words, to practice understanding and compassion. When we discover our own woundedness, when we find ways that we can truly be whole, we are then called to share that with other people, to practice empathy. Paul says to watch our language. And if you're driving and listening to this, He's encouraging not to use foul words, although I know that can be difficult on the roads today. But we need to know that the purpose of our conversations with each other is to find understanding, not to score points. Conversations and speaking language to other people is to build up, not to tear down. Paul says to guard your heart. It really doesn't matter how holy your behavior is if your motivation is wrong. If you don't have a heart of peace, a heart of shalom. So Paul wants you to get rid of anything in your life that is not love or peace. And finally, he says, be kind, compassionate, and forgiving. Kindness and compassion are godly virtues. And every time you forgive or you ask someone for forgiveness, you participate in God's comprehensive restoration of the whole broken world. Friends, it's that important. Ultimately, living an altogether peace can transform your life and the lives of others around you and the relationships you have, and we pray, eventually, the entire world. Wesley described the hope and possibility of a world in which God's people learn to be conduits of peace. 
Being a peacemaker, he says, implies those lovers of God and man who utterly detest and abhor all strife and debate, all variance and contention, and accordingly labor with all their might, either to prevent this fire of hell from being kindled, or when it is kindled, from breaking out, or when it is broke out, from spreading any further, they endeavor to calm the stormy spirits of men, to quiet their turbulent passions, to soften the minds of contending parties, and if possible, reconcile them to each other. They use all innocent arts and employ all their strength, all the talents which God has given them, as well as to preserve peace where it is, as to restore it where it is not. We're beginning in this time of Advent together. It's a time of longing, a time of preparation for Jesus to come, though we must acknowledge that Jesus is already among us. And so it is with peace. What kind of peace do you long for? How will you seek shalom within yourself, to seek wholeness within yourself, or with someone else? Let's pray. Gracious and most holy God, this time of Advent is pregnant with hope, pregnant with the possibilities of peace and joy and love as we await to remember the birth of the Christ child. Help your Son be born again in each and every one of us, that that peace which surpasses understanding, which He tried to teach so many and continues to try to teach us, that that may take hold in us, that we might be made whole in that peace and share that shalom with others. I give you thanks for those who are listening to this, that their lives may be dedicated to you, and that because of what they do, your will will be done, and that someone out there is waiting for them to share the story of the good news of Jesus Christ, so that then they may pass it on. We ask all this in Jesus' name. Amen.